In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakou. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my soundcloud page and podcast on itunes again our studio number 310-441-0555 i'll announce the book of the week for this week again it's so you've been publicly shamed by john ronson so you've been publicly shamed um i'm actually still pretty early in the book but looking at different people who have been shamed Generally, online is a lot of what he's talking about um, in different reasons. Something they tweeted or something, a video of them went viral and they got publicly shamed and looking at the experiences of those individuals. So I'll be talking about that on the show Monday night. So you've been publicly shamed by John Ronson. I wanted to start off the show today, talk a lot about dating and relationships, but talking about a particular type of of relationship and that is long distance relationships many people find themselves in long distance relationships so i wanted to talk a bit about them um, a bit about why we might enter them for the right and the wrong reasons and then also some pointers or tips about that um, so to begin with sometimes people say are long distance relationships good or bad and the answer is yes because they can be both good or bad depends on a lot of different factors and you have to be aware of when you have a long distance relationship some of the factors that are involved so to begin with uh, before I get into some more of the specifics we do have to look at ourselves and pay attention to what we are doing as far as the types of relationships we get into and if you find that you are consistently entering long distance relationships you want to definitely take a look at that and try to understand the why many people enter long-distance relationships regularly or maybe the only relationships they enter are long-distance because they prefer the distance actually as much as they might even curse the distance and be upset that they are far away there can be something more comfortable for them about being far away whether that's a fear of intimacy a fear of commitment a fear of connection um, sometimes even issues with self-esteem and we don't want the person to see us and so if they're further away, it's easier for us to project some type of image of ourselves that they might like and also feel that safety that they'll never get so close to really see who we are. So we actually would prefer a long-distance relationship. So we have to be aware that on the surface, you might even tell yourself, oh, I wish the person was closer. I wish I could see them all the time. But actually, we might be choosing long-distance relationships because of that safety at some level it is our comfort zone. And related to that, sometimes people will enter long-distance relationships because they know there won't be a future. So um, I'll talk a bit about how you want to see if there is a temporary separation. Hopefully at some point you can live in the same city if you're looking for a long-term relationship. But um, at times people will enter long-distance relationships that they know there really is no hope. 
there is an expiration date on it. And that, again, will give them some comfort when it comes to fears of intimacy or commitment that they never will have to worry about it actually becoming something. So again, they might curse that they can't be with that person and tell you, oh, I wish I could be with her, or I can be with him, and I want to be with that person. It could actually be that they're choosing a relationship that they know will end or that really does not have hope of ever materializing completely to becoming a serious, connected relationship where they're living in the same city and eventually same home because they want it to end. And people also do this in non-long-distance relationships. They will start relationships with the wrong person or a type of person that they know some for some reason it can't work out and then get themselves stuck in that relationship, but then eventually know it'll have to end. And again, they might be very sad about it on the surface, but deep down, if they look, they'll see that there might have been a reason why they entered this type of relationship. So again, we don't want to say all long-distance relationships are good or bad, but if you are finding that you are almost only being in those types of relationships, it's not because there's no good people in your city. As Sometimes someone will, people will say, there's no one good here, so I have to look elsewhere. It's that there's something safer about being in a long-distance relationship, so you are constantly choosing those types of relationships. So as always, we have to be reflective and introspective and look at ourselves and try to understand what might be the reason we might be choosing the relationships we are in. But now if you're in a long distance relationship, there's a lots of thing lots of things you have to navigate in order to try to make it work. They are very difficult. The distance can or definitely is a hindrance, but it doesn't have to be a deal breaker meaning that you can't make the relationship work in some way. And there's some things you want to do but also some things you have to try to avoid. And the first thing we have to avoid or be aware of is there is a much higher a tendency towards idealization when you're in a long-distance relationship. So because of the distance and because you don't get to spend time together or the time is limited to phone calls uh, and texting, you don't often get a chance to really know the other person so well. So at the beginning of relationships, we tend to have idealization anyway. As we get to know someone, uh, we both are showing our good sides to each other. So you get the sense that you see this, the positive side, and then we can project and extrapolate from the good that we see and make it even greater. And at times even think of the person as someone without any flaws or faults because we don't see them. So in any relationship, this can happen at the beginning, but in a long distance relationship, this can be even stronger and be even more prolonged because you don't really get to see those negative sides. So if you try to give a positive image of yourself and you're talking for one hour at the end of the night, that's a lot easier than if you're spending time together and see the person interacting in different ways. So that's one thing you want to be very mindful of is that this tendency of idealization, and again, you want to look at yourself and say, am I someone who does this even stronger than most people? Because some people like to live in this imaginary world and want to just stay in that world of idealization, and they're more prone to idealizing whoever they meet. But in general, long-distance relationships can contribute to this even further, because that distance allows you to not see the flaws, just like if you're looking from at something from far away, you can't see the, fault, the flaws and the dings and the different things that are there. We have the same thing happening when we're getting to know someone. And so because of that, whenever possible, especially if the relationship starts long distance, let's say you meet online, um, you want to try to see each other as soon as you can. And the reason why I say this is because this can help 
prevent some of the idealization. So you can feel this tendency to idealize because you're just talking and texting, but seeing each other can get you a better idea of is there actual attraction there? Is there an actual connection there? And also get to know the other person better. Because just based on pictures, yes, we can get an idea of physical attraction and compatibility and overall compatibility. But really, it's nothing compared to seeing the person in person, being face-to-face and in contact with each other. So if it is possible, and sometimes you can feel like it's so early in getting to know each other, but I would always recommend seeing each other face-to-face to see what you have. Because if we don't do that at times, we'll continue to build up this relationship in our heads before we know what we really have. So we'll idealize and already start thinking about a future and planning different things when we don't really know that person at all. And so again, we can prefer that imaginary world, but we always want to come back to reality and see what do we actually have here. So whenever possible, as soon as possible, see each other, make a plan to spend some time together to see what you have. Now, once the relationship starts to unfold or become a little bit more serious, What you also want to make sure you do is that you spend prolonged periods of time together whenever you can. Because if you see each other once a month just for a weekend, a lot of times what people will find is that in that weekend, they'll just want to enjoy each other's time, enjoy each other's company, or they're so excited to see each other that it just becomes this kind of honeymoon type of a feeling where no bad issues come up, no uh, disagreements or anything negative comes up, and it just feels so good, and we feel again that idealization of the person and of the relationship starts to occur where we just feel like this is the perfect relationship. But when you see each other in these brief types of interactions, even if it is just the two days might not sound brief, but it definitely can be, this can lead to to this idealization and not really seeing what you have or how things are with you and this person. And I've also heard many people in long-distance relationships still mention that, well, I went to see him or I went to see her and we were spending the weekend together and something came up But I told myself, you know, we only have 16 more hours together, so I don't want to mess it up by having uh, an argument or disagreement or bringing up something negative. So I just would ignore the things that were bothering me and keep them to myself because I didn't want to mess up that time together. And I would recommend strongly against that. Yes, you absolutely want to enjoy your time together, have fun, all those good things, but... You don't want to ignore or avoid conversations ever, but especially when they come up and especially when you have the chance to talk face to face. Um, Talking on the phone, FaceTiming can be great, but it's definitely not the same as having a conversation face to face. And related to that, and this is not just for long distance relationships, but because of the distance, it can happen even more. Don't have serious conversations about serious topics over text. It's happening so much people prefer it because of the comfort and safety of texting things rather than saying them out loud and saying them to the person face to face. We're choosing to have serious conversations about important topics over text, which is a bad idea for many reasons. Um, Maybe the biggest one is that there's so much miscommunication that occurs via text because there's so much ambiguity because you don't have tone. You can't sometimes tell if the person is being sarcastic. You can't tell exactly what they meant. People even mistype things, but all sorts of things happen over text. So definitely make sure if you're having a serious conversation, it's over text. And let's say you can't talk on the phone at that time, just like you would when you're having face-to-face conversation, it gets too heated. You say, you know what, this conversation is too important for us to have over text. Uh, 
let's stop now. Let's arrange a time where we can talk on the phone and let's talk about it because we don't want to leave it to text to try to go over something this serious. Now, because I want to get to callers and I don't want to talk another segment, I will move forward a little bit. But as the relationship progresses, if you do decide to make it more serious and make it from a long distance relationship to a short distance relationship, meaning that you one person or both people move to a new city, but you move to the same city, a lot of challenges can come up with that as well. Of course, it can be very exciting. And again, now this um, big obstacle of the distance is going away. But a few things happen. One is we have to see how the relationship is going to respond to taking the distance away. Overall, it is a good thing, but some issues might come up. You have to navigate a new type of living and a new type of relationship where now you are in the same city, where before people will find that, okay, we meet for the weekend and we spend that whole time together. It's very easy to figure that out. But now we're living in the same city. We might have differences in how much time we want to spend together or the ways we're going to commit our time to one another or the fights and issues that are going to come up now that we're living in the same city or if we're moving in together to the same house. So we have to be ready for all those types of things. Another big issue that happens when people move is when one person moves to the other person's city. Now, one thing you have to make sure you're doing, if you're the one who's moving, is that you don't say, I'm moving for that person, which is how a lot of people will feel. I'm moving for him or I'm moving for her. It should feel like you're moving for you and your partner. You're moving for us, for this relationship, because you want it. Because if it feels like you're doing them a favor, if you feel like you're doing it for them, this will lead to you having a lot of resentment for them when you're not happy moving to that new city, which likely it will be tough for you to move to this new town. So first, it has to really feel like you're doing it for us, not for either uh, that person in in the scenario, you're not doing it for them, that it's a us type of a decision, not just for them. And then also we have to be ready. Another issue to navigate is when that person already is living in that city, they have their whole life already established there. They have their friends, maybe family, they have their lifestyle, they have different things that they're doing, different places they go, and a whole life there. Now you're just being inserted into that life. And that could lead to lots of adjustments that you have to deal with. First of all, how do I create space? for that person now, for that, the one who's already living there, how do I create space for you? But then also for that new person, I have to now develop a life here, a life that includes my partner, but also my own life. And this can be very hard for couples to navigate and sometimes can lead to lots of conflicts where the person can feel like, well, I've already lived here and now you want me to change my whole life and make it just about you. Especially because when the person moves there, usually they don't know many people, they don't have a lot of connections there. And that can be very challenging for them that they feel very lonely where they feel like they don't have a lot going on, so they'll depend on their partner, and this can lead to a strain. So be ready that even though moving to the same city is oftentimes the biggest goal that you'll have as a couple, starting from the beginning of the long-distance relationship, we can't wait to live in the same city where we don't have to deal with the distance. It doesn't just mean that when the distance goes away, it's all just you know butterflies and rainbows and happiness and everything is good. It does actually put a strain and a stress on the relationship as well. Um, so I'm going to stop there because we're at the end of the segment. I want to get to some callers, but just wanted to talk a bit about long distance relationships. Uh, it was a recommendation from a listener from Vancouver. So thank you for that suggestion 
for starting today's show. Let's go to our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fatty Delacqui. We'll be right back. back studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 let's go to a caller radio hamra you're on the air hello yes hi thanks for calling you're welcome actually thanks for, for having the program where we we can talk to you openly and, and sort of a <laughs> oh, it's, problem it's my pleasure thank you um okay um actually i have been calling frequently and we have been basically following you and your dad on, on raising my child now my toddler she is two and a half next month mm-hmm. and because i have another baby he's just four months old we thought to introduce daycare to my daughter and uh, before that she had a bit of issues socializing with other kids and my husband called you as well regarding this and i i believe we did exactly how you told us mm-hmm. however when she goes to school sort of which i think is also normal that she cries and while she's there she plays but she whinges however recently she has been not not recently because she just started going since last month she wakes up crying in the middle of the night and says uh, bye bye miss marta actually she's the lady there and uh, she says bye bye miss marta no school she asks for me and she's becoming too clingy and i was also thinking because i'm having like more responsibilities on my head now I was thinking to introduce full day. However, looking at the situation right now, I was just wondering, is it wise for us to introduce full day for her, or should I continue with the three hours? Hmm. Well, let's see okay. a little bit more about what's what's going on. So you said when she goes there, she cries, but then she plays, but she you said she winces, like she's not happy? Yes, she, but she's settling in now because they constantly mm-hmm. send pictures. And I do see she's playing with other kids. And yesterday when I went to pick her up, she was actually playing. And then she, she saw me. So she kept on playing for like 30 seconds. Then she realized, oh, mommy's there. And she came running to me crying. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, she's settling in now. But she still cries. And like this morning she woke up saying, bye-bye, Miss Marta, mommy, no school. Like she's, she's telling me all these things. And mm-hmm. I'm just worried that should I introduce full day or not? Yeah. Well, so I know you're... We're seeing some separation anxiety in her, but I'm wondering if you have some separation anxiety, if it's hard for you <laughs> to let her go to daycare. Um, actually, I do. Okay. And I I have been crying because she's going to school. And uh, believe me, she's. I've always wanted a daughter, and, and then I have it, and I, I, I haven't been able to let her go. Mm. And I try, because I read a lot, and I try not to have that sad face because I have emotions. I mean, I try not to show it to her, but I'm saying, happy, like, bye, baby, have fun in school. And when she, when, I, when I'm when i alone, I do cry because I miss her. Hmm. And um, now, so, so, now yeah, do, you, I, do you just miss her or do you feel bad or guilty for having being not around her? Um, actually, to be honest, I feel bad because I... From what I know, that how I was raised, I'm from Fiji, and we go to school when we are four years old or five years old. Mm-hmm. And I feel as if I'm not doing the right thing by sending her away from me because she's just two and a half and she's too little to go to school. Mm-hmm. So I think so, yeah. you're kind of, you know, whether or not it's right to send her full day, that might be too much even just for you. We're not. I'm not going to focus even on her for you to tolerate it right now. 
to send her all day. But we do have to, and I'm glad you're tr- being aware of it, you know, trying to make not make a sad face uh, to your daughter when she's leaving, but it's going to be very important for you to work on your anxiety and then also your guilt about having her go away for a few hours every day and to make sure it's a decision you are okay with before you even do that. I think it is okay for her to be away a few hours each day, but you have to make sure you're okay with it and you accept that decision fully because it seems like you're not okay with it. And she sees you, and so when you're sitting there and, and she's playing and having fun, then she sees you again and she gets sad or cries and comes back to you. That's actually hurting her more than helping her get comfortable there. Okay. Now, because what happened is I have a baby now, so I'm trying to spend more time with him because when Nikita was a baby, we took her to gym brew. She's been swimming, and every day things was happening, but with Caden, I can't do anything. Mm-hmm. So I have to spend time with him, and I know that he deserves my time. But with Nikita, because I think you're true, I have basically raised her being too clingy to me. Mm-hmm. And um, so... I think I have to spend more time with Kaden instead of Nikita now, and so that's the reason I want to send her. But yes, I do admit that I miss her and I feel bad. Well, they both need you. You know, one thing that can happen, and maybe in your case it's not as much the case, but I see this a lot with with parents that they have like a like in your case a two year old and then a newborn, and it's almost like they think the two year old is like so grown up, but it's like the two year old is very little. Is you know she's still a baby. In, in a lot of ways, that she needs a lot of time and attention. So it's not that she, you don't need to spend as much time with her. Maybe the way you're spending the time, and it could be too much, but obviously she still needs a lot of your love and time and attention. So we don't want to take that away, but we do want to be aware of the way this anxiety that it seems like you have about spending time. And if you think she's too clingy, we're going to have to work on this, but it's going to be a process because we also don't want to make her feel bad about being clingy for any reason, but especially because we know you've contributed to her being this way. And so we don't want to make her feel bad about that because this is a relationship you've helped her create. And we're going to slowly modify it and make it so that she has a little bit more of that separation and that uh, almost independence. But we don't want to make it a black and white abrupt type of a thing either because that's going to be very painful for her. Right. Okay. So you recommend I should go see a counselor? Well, I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of anyone going to therapy. Uh, I, as I okay. mentioned on the air, I go to my own therapy because I think I, I want people to hear it, that it's not something we should be embarrassed about or not talk about. I think it's always a good idea and can help both with whatever you're going through and you can also get some input into the parenting. Um, but it seems like there's some you know, issue you have with the separation, which I felt when you were talking about it, that it was hard for your daughter but it's also very hard for you. And that's the part where we, as the the parent, we have to be the one that can handle not only just our own feelings, but our child's feelings. But if we're having a hard time handling our feelings, then it's going to be very difficult for us to handle our kids' feelings. And what can happen is that then your child starts to pick up on how she's affecting you, and she might start trying to take care of you, which is what we don't want to start happening. Yes. Okay. Now, the... The thing is, I did go for therapy, actually, and I think I didn't like the way they were telling because they started to tell me as to who is the boss, and and we don't believe in, in anybody being a boss in, at the, like, in the house because everybody is equal. So that's the reason why I stopped going to the lady, and I did try, believe me, I did try, but it's just I wasn't agreeing to what she was saying, <laughs> and that's why I stopped. Well, you definitely want to be with a therapist you feel good about and feel good with 
Uh, one thing about I, I like the idea you have about kind of a democratic type of home where you're all equal. But even if you're all equal in that way, it doesn't mean that you don't have different roles. And so you as the parents have to be the ones that have more power and control and authority about what is going on because it's your responsibility and your role. I don't want your four-month-old making any decisions about where you guys invest your money. You know, she, that four-month-old doesn't have an equal vote in what things are going on. So still keeping that hierarchy of the home, creating boundaries and structures and a feeling of safety is something that the parents have to create for the kids. So even if we can have that mindset, which I agree with, of equality and that we definitely don't want to go to the other extreme, which many parents do, which can be almost like a dictatorship where they feel like they're the authority and power and whatever they want goes and they can do as they wish. Um, but we want to make sure we don't lose the structure of the home either. And that's what you guys have to create, creating the boundaries no, and the structure. Okay, good. What we do is, for instance, um, if there's she has to wear something. So I'll pick two, and then from there I'll ask her, like, choose which one she wants to wear. And mm. regarding food, we ask her, so these are the options. What do okay. you want to choose from this? Yeah. So so we do all that. I'm, I'm being mindful. And when you said that, also what happens is because I'm naturally a loud person, mm -hmm. and I sort of, when I, when I try to be authoritative, at times I get loud, and my husband tells me stop screaming, and I tell him I'm naturally loud. So... Then we start to have problems and <laughs> like within. Mm -hmm. And just recently what happened was, um, it, it's been four years I, I know my husband and um, we got married. And I basically left everything behind in Fiji and I'm here with him now raising kids. Mm -hmm. But I feel as if like it's getting too much on me, the housework, the school, taking kids to school and coming back, Caden. And basically I'm just like doing everything now. And I sort of am not getting much help from him. Mm -hmm. Then I go back to the mentality where we were raised in a way where my mom, she was doing everything. But I, I think that I don't have the capacity to, to be doing everything. Well, and okay. It's not, and it's not just capacity. It, it could be you had different expectations. And so you're going to get resentment from or for your husband if he doesn't meet those expectations. And I don't know how fair or realistic or unrealistic it is based on your life with him. But it's definitely something you need to communicate with him. Not that you make demands on him, but that you have communication with him about how you're feeling, what's going on. Because this relates also to what we're saying. Yes, I hope you uh, consider going back to therapy, but also in taking care of yourself so that you are able to manage your own emotions better to then make sure they don't spill over onto your daughter. You have to make sure you're doing okay in the household in different ways. And so maybe you feel you need more support from your husband, and that's something you need to communicate with him. Yeah, it just happened two days ago, so we haven't, because we wanted it to calm down and then we'll talk. Mm -hmm. So, so, so yeah, but I, you agree, I now feel as if it's, it's me, sort of, and a good thing about me is I'm, I, I'm aware that these things are happening, and I know it's happening within me, mm -hmm. so, so, yeah. Okay, and <laughs> okay, one, I'll, I'll, one other comment sorry? I wanted to make, I just, sorry, I wanted to, you know, something you said before, and people can have different tones and ways of speaking, and you might be naturally louder, and I don't want to say you shouldn't be that way, but we do have to be aware that to our kids, sometimes that can be scary for them, or it can sound like you're angry or not okay. So I've worked with kids or teenagers, even adults, who remember their parents talking, and the parent might not have been angry even, but they just raised their voice in a way that felt like yelling just to express themselves. And it can be 
scary for the kids. It can be too much. So we do want to be aware of the ways we communicate and the effect it has on our children, remembering that they're so much smaller than us. And so they might get scared or intimidated or feel things from how we communicate that maybe are not at all our intention. So I want you to think about that too, or be aware of that, or see if it's something you can try to work on or see how the kids are responding to it. Does it seem like it's overwhelming for them? Because it seems like your husband says it feels to him like you're yelling or raising your voice, but you think you're just talking. Uh, it's something to be aware of that we have to see how our kids feel when we communicate to them. So in this case with you, it might be the volume. I've worked with other families or parents where just the way they communicate has a stress or anxiety in it that makes the kids feel anxious, but they don't even realize it. So we always want to pay attention to the ways we communicate and the effect it's having, especially on our kids. Yes, I only got to know just recently because sort of um, Nikita was there and I sort of got a bit, I was telling Anna, got a bit loud and Caden started to cry. Then I was like, no, I think I'm really loud. That's why the, my husband was telling me that I'm loud, loud. Mm -hmm. So both of them started to cry. It wasn't that I was screaming. I was just loud. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so, yeah. Okay. Well, you also sound, and, and, you know, having two kids is very difficult. But even in that story, I could see what you're saying, that you can feel overwhelmed at times. And so you might need more support from your husband or really look into what uh, you can do. And this is why having your daughter a few hours a day in a daycare might make that a little bit easier on you. And it's something I think she can handle if it's just a few hours a day. And from what you've said, I'd say not even just because of her, but because of you, I wouldn't necessarily increase to full day. It might be too much for you and for her to handle at this time. Maybe slowly you can get there. But right now I would work on making things good where they're at right now. I think you said she's been going just for about a month. So getting yourself okay and her more okay, and then you can explore that a little bit later. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much for talking to oh, me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for calling. Wish you the best. Thanks for the call. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. We reached our next commercial break, studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Thank you for calling. Thanks for giving me the time. Sure. I'm 27 mm -hmm. and I'm calling from Canada. I've been living here for about 13 years now. So I moved here with uh, my family. Okay. I have a younger daughter, I mean daughter sister. She's nine years younger than me. Okay, but I think there was, uh, there was probably something to the way you said that. You might maybe felt like you were raising her sometimes. Actually, I do feel that way. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it did come out. Yes, I think. Yeah, okay. Uh, okay, so I'm still living with my parents. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I have this long, uh, you know, frustrating relationship kind of with my mom. And when I want to talk about it, it kind of brings me tears as well um, mm. all the time. And um, I've been trying a lot just to figure out the roots of it. And uh, I haven't been able to. So I really have difficulty communicating with her. Mm -hmm. um, I have a very strong relationship with my dad. I feel like I do. I'm able to talk to him. We are on the same page. We share the same opinions. You know, he's very easy to talk to. But um, my mom, I feel like she's still very in that traditional um, setting 
uh, from Iran, like coming from the family that she comes in, like her parents were, like her dad was in the military, so we're from a very strict family, and you know, still some of those traditional beliefs. And um, something that's been bothering me a lot recently is the relationship that my sister has with my mom. It's like the one that I want to have, and I can't have that.、Hmm. So you know, I I don't know what's going on here. I've actually tried to go. I did therapy for about a few sessions,、um, but you know, it didn't help me as much. I'm thinking of changing my therapist. Okay.、Uh, so. So let's talk a bit about because、um, you're saying your your younger sister has the. Kind of ideal or the type of relationship you would want with your mom, and you don't. So tell me about the relationship you have with her. I know you mentioned communication is not easy, and you feel that she's more traditional. But I'm assuming she's still traditional with your sister, unless you feel like she keeps different ideals for you、uh, and her. Yeah, so my sister, she was kind of raised here. She came here when she was six,、mm-hmm. and me and we are very personality-wise very different. I think、um, you know the way that we were raised. So my parents are a lot easygoing with her. You know, whatever she wants to do, she get away with it. And、um, you know, even though, like looking back, even though I'm still 27,、um, I feel like there's more restrictions on me. There's more, you know, demands,、um, a lot of high expectations. But as for her, she's very, you know, she talks to them whenever the way she wants to. She gets away with everything. And my mom accepts. Everything that she does. So let's say she's only 16 or 17. She talks about having a boyfriend. It's absolutely okay. Invite her over. You know, you want to go out with your friends. No, no worries. But you know, I'm in a relationship for like、um, a year and a half now, and I feel like my mom doesn't accept it. I'm, you know, I feel very、um, frustrated to invite my partner over or try to build a relationship with them. She doesn't want to accept it. She's like, no. Why are you going out too much with them? Why are you spending so much time? You know what's going on? So let me. And, is she is she okay with the relationship or with and with him? Uh, she doesn't say. <laughs> okay. So with with that, it's like every time I bring up my relationship or I want to even just make a comment, she seems very ignorant. So I could be like talking to her about different things, and then I bring up something about my relationship, and then all of a sudden. She, She goes quiet, or she gives me no comment, and you know it's kind of like she doesn't want me to talk to her about it. But at the same time, I hear arguments that,、uh, oh, you know, why you're not involving us? Why you're not inviting the guy over? But when I want to do it, she she says no, I don't want、hmm. to. Because、so、she kind of like verbally, I hear. From her that she wants to do certain things and she wants to hear from me, but when I actually put the effort to talk to her or bring it up, like when it comes into action, it's not there. So my relationship with my mom right now has been just a matter of you know saying good morning, I'm here, you know, do you want coffee or tea?、Uh, she, all she wants to talk about is you know how, going to her parties and talking about her friends and fashion and you know. Someone did her plastic surgery, and I'm not into that. This is like not a type of conversation I ever want to have.、Um, is the conversation more about her than about you? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Did so, you did you feel like that even when you were younger that it would become about her and not you?、Uh, I felt like that kind of when we came here. 
because um, even though after like you know this 13 years mm-hmm. she still doesn't feel like she belongs here so she, it could be the smallest you know something comes up and she makes a big deal out of it so it can just be a matter of why didn't you make your bed and then from that everything escalates to oh your dad brought me here i don't like it here you know all of these words i came here for you he's very unhappy with my education and my employment progress um and that puts a lot of burden on me like i feel like i have to meet like whatever she wants from me i think i never gave her that the type of daughter that she wanted with a specific job or employment and she's always comparing me to everybody else um and i do want that i do want her to be happy but the happy that she wants from me is different well yeah but we want we want her to be happy and to love you as you are not if you meet some kind of standard that she's made for herself for you and that's not the feeling you want to get from your anyone, but especially from your parents and from your mom, is that you're not enough as you are in some way. That's how I feel from her. Like yeah. that's, that's the feeling I get from her. And how how far back does that go, that feeling? Does it go back from when you guys moved here, or did you remember even before that, her feeling like uh, comparing you or making you feel not enough? No, it started when we came here, actually, because um, back in Iran, I was always the number one student i was always involved in everything mm-hmm. i was the oldest uh, granddaughter in the family so uh you know i was on the top but uh, when when we came here i had a lot of struggle in university i was taking um like anxiety medication i was uh, you know i did fail uh, a lot of courses so my university degree took me a long time to finish but mm-hmm. you know i'm proud of myself that i I went through all of that. Yeah. Um, hmm. But I feel like she doesn't see that. She just keeps telling me, um, you know, no, you shouldn't be that way. You know, we had no problems. She doesn't want to accept that I had pressure here and yeah. I struggled. Hmm. Um, so I didn't meet her expectations. She keeps telling me, oh, if you were back around, you would have been a doctor by now, but here you are 27 and you just finished your bachelor's degree. Um, and she keeps bringing that up. So that's why maybe I don't want to have that conversation with her. Like, of course. Uh, well, this, yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense that you don't want to talk to her. I can get that. It, you want to have a relationship with her, but you feel like you can't have a conversation with her without it hurting or feeling painful for you. So it's not easy for you to initiate those conversations but then you don't feel good about the distance either so you feel stuck you want to be closer with her but closer to her seems like it's more pain rather than more of a good feeling and so you feel stuck yeah and you know you guys it was hard for everyone when you guys moved here i'm sure it was hard on your mom it seems like she has a lot of anger and resentment towards your father about that but it seems like she takes it out a lot on you uh, as yeah, well, like maybe, you know, this was something very fortunate for you and maybe it has given you opportunities. But when you moved, I'm sure it was extremely difficult for you as a teenager to move to a new country and to try to adjust and everything that you did. And I hope you are proud of yourself for what you've done so far. And it was struggles and challenges. But here you are. And, uh, you know, life is not just a race anyway to say you should have been here at this point or should have done that. You, you face a lot of challenges and here you are and you're, you keep going. 
And of course, you want to get the feeling from your mom of her being proud of you. And she doesn't give you that feeling, unfortunately. I can see how that no, that hurts. So my question, my main question for you is that um, I'm trying to see if it's a very good option for me to move out. Um, you know, but my dad recently got a job outside of our city. So he mm-hmm. only comes in town every couple weeks for three or four days. And uh, my sister recently went to university, and she's never home. Like, she's always out with her friends, or she's, you know, she's not home a lot. Um, And I feel like, I don't know, I'm kind of stuck. I feel like for my own, I need to move out. I need to experience that, you know, just to be able to um, live alone, experience, and learn a lot, which I still have to learn. Uh, But at the same time, I feel bad because... She put that pressure on me that she's alone and her husband is not here and the younger daughter is not there and I'm the only one and I should be some kind of support to her. Yeah, so, so she she puts the pressure on, that? yeah, you know, so we can, in hearing you talk, is she puts a pressure on you. We can say that, but we also have to be aware of the pressure you put on yourself, that you want to live to her standard still rather than living your life. Or she tells you, I'm not happy. And that's why even, you know, you called your sister uh, your daughter. But in some ways, you're kind of treating your mom like your daughter, too. Like you have to take care of her. And you have to put your own life at hold or put put your own life on hold or put your own progress on hold to make sure she's okay. And that's not your responsibility. And that, to go back even further of her expecting from you, you kept saying, you know, the, the parents should not have expectations from the kids to give them something. They're supposed to give to their kids. So I don't think you should be, you are at all also responsible for her and that you need to stay home to make sure she's not alone. Especially when you describe your relationship with her to begin with, but even still it doesn't seem like you want that. And so... I, I mean, I'm not saying you should move out definitely and move out immediately, but I think the decision should not be about what's best for your mom. It has to be what's best for you. Okay, so um, what is your suggestion in terms of, you know, um, do, you, do you suggest more probably therapy sessions, like alone? Or, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, our, like my parents have been to therapy themselves. They have mm-hmm. their own issues. And the therapies, and like, you know, Apparently, they told them that it's a good idea. Like, he really wants us to be in the session as well. Okay. But I don't feel comfortable. And, you know, I feel like even in front of a therapist, I wouldn't be comfortable talking about my problems with my mom. Um, you mean in front of her? She, yeah, because I don't know how she would take it. She, she has this, hmm. um, you know, history of going into panic attacks. So even a few times that... You know, I try to talk to her, and because she doesn't want to hear that, it's not up to her standards. She just, you know, I've had to call 911 twice. Wow. Um, so it, it goes mm. that extreme in some cases. And my dad knows that, but, you know, due to financial needs, we have to, you know, deal with that situation right now, that my dad is away and he's not there to take care of her, and she's really relying on me which I don't want to and you know, me spending time with my partner and you know I and I feel like I'm making up uh, appointments and schedules and keeping myself busy just so I can stay away from the house mm-hmm. which I kind of don't like that but at the same time when I'm home she's into panic attacks I'm not having the best time 
but at the same time, I feel bad too that she's alone and she doesn't have the support. Well, you know, when I hear you talk about your relationship with her, it definitely seems like one where space and distance would actually be beneficial for the relationship and more closeness is not going to help. It's actually, you guys are too close in a codependent kind of a way that your emotions and things affect each other too much. And it relates in some way, in a kind of indirect way, but the caller before I was telling her as a mother to take care of herself emotionally in order that she can take care of her daughter, who was much younger than you, but to take care of her daughter and so that her daughter won't feel like she has to take care of her mom emotionally. But it seems like in your case, for quite some time now, that role has reversed and you feel like you have to take care of her emotionally. Or even if not just take care of her, but if you're upset, you can't share that with her because she's going to have a panic attack because she can't handle it. So you've learned to try to hold it in yourself, but that doesn't go away. And it's turning into more pain and resentment and anger towards her too. But then you feel like you can't express that to her because she can't handle it and it just gets worse. So I can understand you avoiding being home. That makes a lot of sense. And again, I don't know how much you're helping her by being there. Now, I know there is a loneliness that you would have if you're not there. But the way you describe your relationship with her, there is a lot of tension there anyway. And the way you described in the morning, she, you know, you want tea or coffee and then she talks about herself. It becomes very much about her and not about you. And this is why we always tell parents, you have to make sure you take care of yourself. You have your own life, your own social life. You're happy in your life and you're not at all responsible. Uh, putting that responsibility on your kids to make you happy or to give you part of that life. And so that's unfortunately the situation that you are in. So I can understand it's hard for you and you feel like you're hurting her so much if you create some space. Um, but it's hard because on one hand, you're like, if I want to talk to her about it, even in therapy, I'm not sure she can handle it. And on the other hand, it's just this really hurtful relationship. I hope you can give it a try in therapy if they're willing to do family sessions, see what can happen there. Maybe with the safety of the therapist being there, it will be different. Because the way the relationship is, it's not something you're going to be able to tolerate too much of in your life. And it'll just get more and more distant over time. Or that's the only right. solution. You know, I'm already, and I'm already dealing with a lot of pressures myself, too. I'm trying to get my school on track and my mm -hmm. employment and, you know, with the relationships and everything. So, and I still feel myself as a family person. I want to have that closeness. Sure. But, you know, I'm very debating whether I should really move out. But what you're saying, I hear it. So it does... Um, Maybe that's the best way. Maybe some distance uh, could help her out. Maybe she can um, find a hobby or you know get herself involved with friends. So, yes, and I, I'm sure she can. And I hope she would. But even in hearing you talk about it, rather than talking about you and what you want, you're seeing is she going to be okay if I give myself what I want? So yeah, right. I just didn't notice that. Yeah, you're. Because you want to make the guilt, you know, you feel guilty if you didn't. So I think you using that word daughter for your sister is making a lot more sense. And I think you have this caretaking kind of a mindset that you're supposed to take care of other people and not be as aware of your own wants or needs. And your mom is struggling and suffering and you guys all went through a lot. But it does seem like you've also become where she dumps that negative emotion a lot of times. So um, and that's not going to work. And I don't know, there could be some different things of how she looks at you and if she compares herself to you in some way or sees more of herself in you so she takes it out on you more than your younger sister. 
those are some things that you can reflect on or think about also. But I just want to make sure you're making the best decision for your life, whatever that might be. And your responsibility isn't to your mother or to anyone else, but it is to yourself. And I asked about the moving out because, you know, my boyfriend did ask me if, you know, because he knows about my struggle, he actually helped me a lot too. Mm-hmm. He's the one who actually told me that I think some distance would help you out. Yeah. And uh, even though he's not really ready for a big commitment, but he knows the struggles that I go through. He said, you know, if you have trouble uh, with financial, you're more than welcome to stay with me, you know, as long as you get your own place. So, and, you know, even just that scares me bring up the conversation and say, Mom, I'm, I'm moving out. Well, well, there's two. Out. Moving out is one thing. Moving in with him is another. And they might be related, but I don't want you to make the decision either based on, well, because I have to move out and I don't have a place yet, I should move in with him because that's making a big step in the relationship that I wouldn't want you to make um, more out of like a necessity or feeling like this crisis rather than you really want to do it and you guys are both committed to that. So I would think about that as well, that you don't want to just move in with him just because it's an option and you want to get out as soon as possible. See what you can figure out for yourself. And if you want to move in with him because you think that's the right step for your relationship, that's different. But I wouldn't want something else to make that kind of a big decision for you guys. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much for talking to me. My pleasure. Nice talking to you. Best of luck to you. Thank you so much. Yes. Wish you the best. Call back if you want a, an update or later on when things are developing because I'm sure there'll be more more to explore. I will for sure. Thank you. I'll keep you posted. All right. Looking forward to it. Take care. <laughs> okay. Take care. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Going into our next commercial break, studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So a few callers that uh, talked about this issue or came up about a parenting issue that I wanted to talk about or just in general wanted to talk about parenting because um, it's the most difficult job or role you will have in your life if you have it and the most important one. And of course, it's a very difficult one. So um, one thing I wanted to mention about parenting, so it came up with the callers in different ways is that it's very challenging to be a parent and we have to be aware of that but we have to be aware of how we are doing first and when we talk to parents or when you ask parents their questions very often it's about different techniques that they can do when it comes to sleep training or bedtimes or timeouts are they good or bad and a bunch of different things and there's definitely some th- a lot of things to be learned there but what's more important for me is the mindsets that you bring into your parenting, the ways you think about how to parent, what you should be doing, shouldn't be doing, and how you should approach it. One very important mindset to have as a parent when it comes to your child's behavior, and actually we could say this about even ourselves, your partner, anyone else as well, but especially when it comes to your kid, is to have a mindset of curiosity, meaning that when you approach your child or when you see your child showing any kind of a behavior, your first response is to be curious as to the why. What's going on here? Why might my child be doing this? And being a parent is very difficult and your kids will stress you out. And lots of times parents will tell you, I think she just does this to bother me or to annoy me. That's how it can feel. 
And at some level, it might be right. It's not just they do it to bother you, but they might be trying to get a rise out of you. But underneath that, they're trying to communicate something. And very often they themselves can't express it. It's more unconscious or it's hard for them to verbalize it, even if they're aware of it, but they're telling you something. So if your kid is making a mess, rather than just thinking, gosh, my kid just wants to make my life difficult, or I'm so mad at my kid, or why am I dealing with this, or why do I have to deal with this? We do want to look at the why. And sometimes when we look a little deeper or think about things a little more, like, you know what? He didn't sleep well last night, or he had a disappointment this morning, or something else is going on, or maybe I haven't been giving him enough attention today. There's something that they are communicating to you. So we always want to have a stance of curiosity. I'm trying to understand. And sometimes we can even ask our child or explore with them, especially as they get older and they can verbalize more. But we always want to come from that place, not a judgmental stance, not a thinking the negative of our child, that they're just trying to be difficult, even a tantrum, which we might think they're just doing it for attention or just to be dramatic. Something's going on. Usually it's that they're having too big of feelings within themselves to handle, and it's coming out in this way. Is it annoying? Is it frustrating? Is it difficult? Yes, it can be all of those things, but they're not doing it to be annoying and difficult and frustrating. They're doing it because they can't control those feelings. So the first thing is that we want to have a stance of curiosity. But what's also important is that we make sure we see how we are doing ourselves. We have to make sure we are emotionally okay, and it's the only way we can be a good parent. There is, um, you know, sometimes we think about being on the airplane and it's kind of a cheesy cliche example, but they always tell you if you're with a kid and the air masks drop, first you put one on yourself before you put it on your child. You have to make sure you're okay to take care of your child because in the midst of trying to take care of them, if you pass out, now you're not capable of doing anything and the child is left without you. So you have to make sure you take care of yourself first and make sure you're okay. And for lots of parents, but especially lots of mothers and lots, especially lots of Iranian mothers, this seems a little bit backwards. We, we sometimes think that you're showing your strength as a mother, you're showing how dedicated you are and how much you love your children based on how much you suffer. That if you're stressed and suffering and going through so much, somehow that is a testament to how much you love your kids and how good of a mom you are or how good of a parent you are. But no one needs to see you suffer or no one benefits from seeing you suffer. No one feels good to see you suffer. And love does not have to mean suffering whatsoever. You don't need to be in that kind of pain to make your child feel loved. If anything, it doesn't make them feel good even if you do something good for them, but they see you suffering, it doesn't feel good. It's like serving them delicious food with thorns in it. It can taste good in some ways, but it's going to hurt as well. So we want to make sure we take care of ourselves. And I can't tell you the number of times I've seen parents and seen how stressed they were, and especially with the mother and telling them, you know, maybe it's good for you to go to your own therapy or for you to take care of themselves. And very often they're knee-jerk reaction is, oh, no, no, no. I just want to help my kid. I don't care about myself. I don't want to take care of myself. I just want to make sure my kid is okay. But I try to explain to them that one of the best things and sometimes the most important thing you can do for your child is to take better care of yourself. If you're not okay, your child is not going to be okay. And Eric Fromm talks about in The Art of Loving how having a zest for life is one of the biggest gifts a mom can give to her child. And if a child has a depressed mom, that makes them very 
become very hopeless about life. They're not going to feel good about life. So you want to take care of yourself because, as I was mentioning with some of the callers who we've talked to today, if you are not okay emotionally, you can't handle someone else's feelings. If you can't take care of yourself and feel okay, doesn't mean you feel good all the time. Doesn't mean you have to be happy all the time. Uh, you're still going to have lots of stresses and things going on in your life. Being a parent often means being sleep deprived. So you're dealing with that stress, which makes everything a lot more difficult. So I'm not saying you have to feel perfect and feel good. That's not even possible. But you want to try to manage your own feelings and take the best care of yourself emotionally so that you can then be there for someone else emotionally. It's kind of like physical strength in a different way. If you're not okay physically, you can't help someone else. If your back hurts so much and your knees have so much pain and weakness, you can't then pick up your child, literally. And similarly, if you're not okay emotionally, you won't be able to handle their feelings. Because what you need to be able to do is have your own feelings in check enough that you can then help your child cope with their feelings. Uh, Winnicott would talk about like a holding environment for your emotions, uh, for the emotions of the child, where you have to be able to hold their feelings, make sure they're okay or handle it for them. So your child comes to you crying and they can't handle how sad they are and they are in tears and you have to be able to be there with them. So you validate and empathize with them, but also you help hold the feelings. You're like a container for them that can hold how big all of their feelings are so that they can feel okay or slowly start to feel okay. And over time, what's very important is that you allow the child to take on more and more of that role of holding their own feelings. But this is something that a parent has to do when the child is very young and slowly get the child to that point where they can handle and contain those emotions. So if I can't handle my own feelings, then I won't be able to be there fully for someone else's feelings. And what happens, unfortunately, is when the child sees that you are not able to handle their feelings, they start to hold in their feelings or put them away. And this is what we often see is that children are very uh, aware of how their parents are responding. And when they feel that their parent can't handle what they are feeling, they will put their feelings away and even a lot of times assume that those feelings are bad feelings. When I'm sad, it makes mommy sad. When I get mad, mommy can't handle it. So that's a bad part of me. When it's not a bad part of them, it's a part of being human, a part of, that everyone has, but they start to put those feelings away. And what we start to see is a role reversal. Whereas we are supposed to take care of the child and love and support them emotionally, they start to try to take care of us they start to put their feelings away or they smile just to make mommy happy or they uh, hide their bad feelings to make sure their mommy and daddy are okay. And the parents might not recognize this is happening and think all is good and well, but they're not realizing how bad of a scenario they are creating for their child, where rather than them being the caretakers, the child is now taking care of them. And a great book about this concept is the drama of the gifted child by Alice Miller, where she talks about the gifted child not being good in math or uh, musical abilities, but gifted in the sense that they're emotionally sensitive. So from a very young age, some children are even better than others at picking up on their parents' feelings. And if their parents are going through something and they have some emotional needs that are not met and they unconsciously pass them on to the child, the child can be very good at fitting that role becoming what the parent wants them to become. 
And this is, again, exactly what we don't want to see happen. And you as a parent have to check in with yourself. How much am I consciously or unconsciously or how much am I expecting my child to take care of me emotionally? How much am I expecting them to make sure I'm okay? And of course, we love our kids. We don't like to see them sad. We don't like to see them hurt, but we have to be able to handle it. And this is another thing you sometimes see in Persian parents, and it can be, again, more the mothers, where there can be an almost histrionic response to their child being hurt or emotionally or physically, where they think, again, this shows how much I love my kid, that if they scrape their knee, I start to scream or wail or hit myself to show how much it's hurting me. So I'm showing my love to my child, but we don't see that all we're doing is making the child in an already painful situation feel more overwhelmed and feel that they don't have us as a support or as someone who can care, take care of them and make them feel better, but rather they have to, again, take care of us. So next time I get hurt, it's better for me not to show them. So we have to be able to contain and manage our own feelings to then be able to be there for our children emotionally as well. So I just wanted to share a few kind of concepts of parenting that came about from the calls we had already today. And that brings us to our next commercial break, studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Lakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's continue the discussion on parenting and talk about a philosophy of parenting. I was saying about some good um, philosophies or mindsets to have in parenting, but one that parents tend to have that I think is very harmful is one that I call the pain prevention philosophy of parenting. And this basically boils down to the idea that a lot of parents think their only job or their main job as a parent is to make sure their kids avoid pain, avoid discomfort, avoid what we consider the negative feelings, things like sadness or anger. And this motivates almost everything they do constantly focused on if I avoid pain, if I avoid anger, sadness, I'm doing a good job as a parent and anything that makes my kid less sad is good. Anything that makes my kid more sad is bad. And that's essentially the driving force. And so related to that is the idea that I'm supposed to make my kids happy. And there's a few ways we can define the word happiness. But one way we think of happiness or people envision it is to feel joyful or feel good all the time. So you have a smile on your face, you're happy. If you don't, you're not happy. But then there's a type of happiness we can think of, which is more a feeling of contentment or feeling good about your life. And that type of happiness is one we, in general, should be striving towards anyway, but also as parents should be considering for our children as well, that we're trying to teach them or raise them in the way that's best for them, to bring out the most good in them and to lead to a good life, not just to feel good all the time. But for many parents, this mindset is feel good in the moment. That's good. Anything bad in the moment is not good. And of course, this doesn't just apply to parenting. It comes from our own feeling about feelings, that we think that negative feelings like sadness or anger are bad and not good. So we shouldn't be feeling them either. And so as a result, we of course don't think our kids should be feeling them because that's bad. And also it makes me a bad parent if my kids are feeling bad because they're feeling these really bad things. So to change this philosophy and mindset, we have to change the paradigm we have when it comes to what we consider quote unquote negative feelings. When we think of anger and sadness and think of them as these bad things, 
then of course, we're not going to like to see them in our kids. And so you see many people that have very little tolerance for these negative emotions. So we can talk about frustration tolerance or distress tolerance, which to me is one of the biggest indicators or biggest signs and biggest contributions to good mental health. But we want to have a healthy amount of distress tolerance. What that means is that we can tolerate negative feelings or we can tolerate feeling bad or feeling frustrated with the recognition that although I feel bad right now, two things. First of all, there's something I can learn from this bad feeling. It's telling me something. Just like our physical pain receptors are telling us about something that's going wrong or bad in our body, my painful emotional receptors, if you want to call them that, are telling me something as well, something not good. Either I'm hurt or feeling threatened or feeling someone is taking advantage of me, but that is actually information, not just something to get rid of. But so we have that idea that it's beneficial or there's some benefit there or some information that my negative feelings are telling me. But then the other side is that I know that feelings are temporary, that they're not forever. And this can be very healthy. One thing that can help us with achieving this, along with trying to shift the paradigms and thinking about them, is to practice meditation and mindfulness, to focus in the moment on things where we can see that we feel things, and for a moment you might feel a pain or discomfort physically or emotionally, but then it goes away. And when we're aware of this, it gives us this perspective that, okay, although I feel angry right now, I'm not going to feel angry forever. And even that way of describing it as I feel angry is very different from I am angry. It might not sound that different and we might not even notice the, the distinction. But when I say I am angry, that means it's all of who I am in that moment. I am just anger. But when I say I feel angry, it means I just recognize it as a feeling I am having. It's not all of me. It doesn't consume me and it doesn't have to determine even the next action I take. I don't have to act based on my anger. I can be aware of the feeling, become aware of what it might be informing me about what's going on, but I might choose to act in a very different way from what the feeling might make me want to act in that moment. So practicing mindfulness and meditation can be very good for helping us become aware of how transient our feelings are. They can come and go in different ways. Sometimes I like the um, analogy I've heard before that meditation can help you see your thoughts or your feelings as waves of an ocean. And if you're sitting on the beach, a wave can come in and then a wave can come out. And you don't have control over keeping the wave in or pushing it away. So if it's a good feeling, you can try to keep it there longer, but really you can maybe have very little effect, but it's going to go away. And similarly, a bad feeling, the same thing. It's going to come in and maybe it doesn't feel good while it's there, but it will go away too. And so we can try to fight or resist these waves coming in and out, but really we don't have that way of controlling them. And it's better to allow them to come and go and notice them and have that awareness, but not be controlled by them or not try to control them. They are coming and they are going, and that's all that they are. So if we can shift this idea of our negative feelings, first of all, recognizing that they're temporary, but very importantly for me is always emphasizing that they're informing you of something. If your leg hurts, I don't want you to ignore that pain or to take a painkiller to immediately just get rid of that pain. We want to first understand why is your leg hurting? You have to understand that. And also, when we try to take away pain, 
it doesn't allow us to feel pleasure as much. One part of, um, it's one of Brene Brown's TED Talks that I really liked is that she mentioned that when you numb feelings, you can't just numb the bad. You numb the bad and the good. So the, the way I look at this is if someone injected a painkiller in your back, yes, you would no longer be able to feel physical pain in your back as long as the drug was active, but you also wouldn't get to feel the pleasure of a massage. So if someone massaged your back, but it's numb, you don't feel anything. So you don't feel the bad, but you also don't feel the good. But when we try to numb ourselves from the bad feelings, we have to take away, in some ways, the good as well, or really the genuine feeling of the good feelings. So we want to remove this idea of sad feelings being bad feelings. It's okay to be sad. Not only is it okay, it is telling us something. So as parents, we want to try to adopt this mindset that negative feelings are not all bad. And so first in myself, I can tolerate them, that if I'm sad, I can tolerate those sad feelings. I can be okay with them. I can sit with them um, or lean into those feelings. But that also I want to understand why I'm feeling that way because that can be very informative as well. And then we want to bring this mindset into our children. Do we want them to feel emotional pain? No, we don't want them to feel it. And definitely we don't want to inflict any kind of emotional pain on them uh, and make them feel bad or take make them feel something that doesn't make them feel good but we understand that life involves pain as well so try as we might to give them the best life we can and to take care of them we know they're going to feel and face emotional pain and that is part of life and so when they experience them it's not some kind of emergency sometimes i i talk to parents i'll say that what they can do is they can turn their child's tears into a crisis and changing that first I in crisis to a Y, that the crying means automatically a crisis, that there's some kind of emergency that has to be quickly taken care of and we have to put out this fire. And the only goal is to get the kid to stop crying rather than understanding the tears. So if your child cries, I'm in no way saying ignore it or don't care about it. You care, but the way you respond isn't just to erase the feelings or erase the tears but rather to empathize and validate first and then also help them explore what they're feeling, why they're feeling it, how they want to deal with it, and all those other things that are very important when it comes to dealing with our emotions. So if we just try to get them to stop crying and think that's the only goal, we miss a lot of valuable steps and valuable lessons that our children would benefit from learning that will actually help better equip them for life. Because negative feelings whether you like it or not, are going to be a part of life. You can't live life. You can't have relationships. You can't face any kind of challenges in various aspects of your life without facing different feelings, including the negative ones. And you can't even have a healthy relationship without being in touch with your sadness and your anger. You can't be genuine and be connected and be close to someone if you are avoiding those feelings in yourself. Your partner needs to, to feel them. First, you need to feel them yourself, but your partner needs to be aware of them as well. So if you don't feel those feelings, you're not going to be in a healthy and strong relationship because there won't be as much closeness and a genuine connection than you can have. So your job isn't to make your kids just feel good. Your main role when it comes to their feelings is first of all to validate them, to make them feel that they're okay to feel whatever they're feeling. So to show them that empathy and that validation, but then also very importantly, help them to cope and deal with their feelings in a healthy way, to reflect on what they're feeling and why they're feeling it. And then also how they'd like to deal with the feeling now. 
and showing them healthier and unhealthier ways. And this is, again, where that concept of frustration and distress tolerance comes into play because we don't want to teach them the idea that the best solution is the fastest solution. If uh, having a cookie makes you feel better, the fastest do that, which, of course, reinforces this idea that as you get older, a drug or alcohol or some kind of other uh, negative behavior that might quickly give you a good feeling or make you numb, that's the way to go. We want to show them there's healthier ways. Talking about it can be very helpful. Sometimes exercising can feel good. Reflecting on it, writing about it, doing some kind of art, lots of different ways we can try to deal with our feelings. Sometimes getting a hug from a loved one can make us feel better. There's lots of ways we can deal with our feelings, but there's a huge range of how positive or negative they are. But if we base it just on how quickly it takes away the pain, we'll be missing a lot of very important lessons that can be learned. So remember that your job as a parent isn't to make your kids happy, especially when we think of happiness as just smiling all the time and feeling good. We are actually supposed to be there with them as they feel whatever they are feeling. And also another aspect of this is that if we just focus on the pain prevention philosophy of um, parenting that I was talking about before, we also take away opportunities for growth for our children. Because anytime you are going to grow, Anytime you're going to learn something new, face a challenge, it can involve some pain and discomfort. And when we just focus on taking away pain, then we also take away opportunities for growth. And that is also very hurtful to your child. So your job, again, is not to just make them happy, but to validate their feelings, empathize with them, and also contribute to their growth. And that's always a question you have to ask yourself in your own life, but especially as a parent. Is the pain I'm trying to prevent or avoid something that leads to damage or something that leads to growth? Pain that leads to damage we should avoid, but pain that leads to growth we want to encourage. So today I went to the gym, and there's different types of pain you can feel at the gym. Sometimes if you're working out and you're doing something poorly or you have some kind of injury, you might be damaging a muscle or a ligament or some part of your body, and that's a bad pain. That's not a good pain that you need to embrace and lean into and keep uh, encouraging yourself to create more of. And so you don't want to have that kind of pain. But then, of course, there's the pain that comes from muscle, that creates muscle growth. No pain, no gain. You have microscopic tears that occur in the muscle, and when the body repairs them, it gets stronger and bigger, and that's what you're trying to usually achieve in the gym. And that's the good kind of pain, the pain that leads to growth. So your job with yourself, but especially with your kids, is to look at what kind of pain is my child facing right now? Is this pain that's just damaging, or is this actually a pain or discomfort that might lead to their growth? They're studying, and it's a little bit frustrating, but this is good for them to learn the discipline and, and what it can mean to do hard work and get some results, and that, that when they work hard, they get positive results. They're having a fight with their friend. Is it something that is going to help them learn how to resolve conflicts and to develop empathy and all those good things? Or is this friend actually bullying them and we might have to help or at least intervene at some level to prevent this damaging relationship? doesn't mean we swoop in and completely save them, but you might need to be more involved because there's damage involved. So that's another aspect you have to always keep in mind with your kids is, is this pain I'm avoiding for them or trying to avoid one that leads to damage or growth? And very often, unfortunately, we take away opportunities for our children to grow because we just think we have to make sure they don't feel any pain. So if you find yourself having this pain prevention philosophy of parenting, I hope you'll reevaluate it 
see that first your role isn't just to prevent pain and to make your kid always smiling, but also the good that could come from allowing them to embrace and face and lean into some of those negative feelings, the things we think of as negative. I even sometimes don't like that term, but really we mean negative as, as in they don't feel good in the moment, but they have a lot of positive aspects to them as well. But to allow our kids to face those not so pleasant feelings as well, because it does contribute to their growth. All right, going into our last commercial break, you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. back. One of the topics that comes up a lot on this show is having difficult conversations or uncomfortable conversations. Even last year, one of the books of the week was entitled Difficult Conversations. And I thought it was actually a really good book, a little bit more business focused, but also talked a lot about how you can better prepare yourself to have those difficult conversations, which by definition are difficult and uncomfortable. So we tend to avoid them. And so I always say in every relationship, even friendships and family relationships, but especially in romantic relationships, there are many unsaid or unhad difficult conversations that should be had, or if they would would be had, would improve the relationship. And even taking it a step further and making it a little more dramatic, I think a lot of affairs and a lot of infidelity occurs because of unhad conversations. People become more distant or the relationship starts to become tarnished and falls apart in different ways because issues are not discussed and brought up. And unfortunately, rather than dealing with them or rather than going to divorce, people choose to have an affair to get their needs met or to deal with what they're going through. So I'm very much in favor of encouraging people to have uncomfortable conversations because I know because they're uncomfortable, we tend to avoid them but they are very helpful and beneficial. And so we talk about having uncomfortable conversations with our loved ones, with our romantic partners, but wanted to wrap up the show today talking about a different type of uncomfortable conversation or a different person that we need to have that difficult conversation with, and that's the person we see in the mirror, having a difficult conversation with ourselves. Because very often... We are avoiding things in our own lives and not facing what's happening in our own lives and choosing to be in denial. And so very often, we don't have to just have these difficult conversations with other people, but we have to take a nice hard look in the mirror and and have that difficult conversation with ourselves because we avoid things that we don't like. We avoid what we don't like to see. We avoid what we don't want to see or we avoid what we don't want to accept is happening in our own lives but we have to face that reality and be realistic with ourselves now there's many reasons why we avoid these conversations but one that comes up a lot with people i work with is that because of how hard we are on ourselves and how punishing we are we try to avoid seeing our own problems our own mistakes our own shortcomings because we know or we feel that once we do, we're going to have to really punish ourselves hard. So I have this conversation a lot with people who, when you talk about self-love and being more compassionate and loving towards yourself, they say, I don't want to be that way because that means I'm going to be soft on myself. I'm going to take it too easy on myself. I won't work hard. And I very strongly disagree with this. And there's a lot of research that shows that this is not actually the case because when I say you should love yourself more. It doesn't mean you just take it easy on yourself. And this actually 
relates to what I was talking about in the previous segment, that if you think your job as a parent is just to make your kid feel good. But when I say loving yourself, it doesn't mean just taking it easy and feeling good. But when you love yourself, you want what's best for yourself. So you actually will push yourself to do good things, to work hard, to exercise and take care of yourself in different degrees. It doesn't mean you just love yourself and say, because I love you, you don't have to do anything. You know that actually doing something is what makes you feel good and what is good for you. So you give yourself that love. So being loving doesn't mean you don't work hard or you don't try hard. And then on the other end, people think that if they're so hard on themselves, that's when they push themselves. But what we often find is that people who are very hard on themselves, they avoid seeing their own mistakes. So people who are very hard on themselves are more likely to, for example, keep working on the things they're good at or keep working at the areas of their life that they are good at, but avoiding completely facing the negative things because they know that once they face it, they're actually going to be harder on themselves or too hard on themselves. And so I use sometimes this analogy of two kids who have two different moms and they both break a vase. Now, one of the moms is extremely punitive, abusive, will yell and hit the kid if they do anything wrong. And the other mom is understanding, uh, will be loving, will acknowledge the child did something wrong or that there should be some kind of consequence, but we'll do it in a loving way. Now, which child do we expect is more likely to tell their parent what happens and which one do we think will literally in a way figuratively sweep things under the rug? The one with the more punishing parent is much more likely to try to avoid the punishment by either lying or making something up or hiding what has happened. Whereas the, the more loving parent is more likely to have the child tell them what has happened. Now we internalize these parents into ourselves and we have that same type of relationship with ourselves. So when you are harder on yourself and when you know that if you find wrongdoing, you're going to have to emotionally beat yourself up, you're less likely to want to face those things. But if you know that if you make a mistake or you see something you're doing wrong or somewhere where you need to improve, that you'll acknowledge it and notice it and work on it, but still have love for yourself, it's a lot easier to do so. And so this is what we find. People who are very hard on themselves are more likely to deny things to themselves or not see what's going on. So there's different ways that we can look at life or different parts of our life we can look at that we might avoid having conversations with. One is taking care of ourselves in different ways, whether it's our physical health when it comes to weight or some kind of issue we're dealing with or some substance we're using that is harmful. We're very often in denial of that pain or what is really going on or we try to avoid it. And this is why we know when it comes to addiction, very often what can be so hard to overcome is to have the person who is addicted overcome their own denial, to actually accept they have a problem. So we say that they really can't get help until they accept they had a problem. And if you talk to someone who is in uh, recovery and has been sober for some time, they'll acknowledge that even when they denied it to people, they at some level knew they had a problem, but they were trying to deny it and avoid it. They didn't want to face it or it felt too hard to face or overcome. And so they were denying it to themselves. So this is that first type of hard conversation we often need to have with ourselves is, okay, let me see if there's some aspect of taking care of me that I'm avoiding, that I'm choosing to deny. Maybe it's too hard or too scary. Another very common one is people not going to the doctor when something is going wrong. 
So they start to feel the pain or feel something, or they know they need to get some kind of test. But because we're so anxious about seeing that result or too afraid to see what that result might be, we avoid going. And as much as we try to deny it to ourselves, we know that somewhere at the back of our mind, it's always there and it comes up. And so we avoid that. And as difficult as it can be to face the music, we want to always face the reality to see what's there. And unfortunately, many people avoid the tests. And then when they finally go in, it's either too late or more damage has been done. And if they just went earlier, they could have done a lot to help themselves feel better and do better in their lives. So we want to make sure we don't do that when it comes to our physical health. Now, when it comes to our emotional health, the same thing can happen. People will feel depressed or anxious or deal with a lot of different emotional or psychological issues, but will avoid acknowledging it and avoid getting help. And here there is the avoidance, as in before, of not wanting to face the problem on top of the fact that when it comes to mental illness, we have a huge stigma that we often carry that tells us that if I have a mental health issue, I'm crazy or bad or defective. And so we try to avoid acknowledging that we're dealing with something psychologically. And we don't tell people, we don't even try to tell ourselves, and we don't seek out help. And unfortunately, again, by not facing the issue and facing reality, the problems tend to only get worse over time. And we suffer more and suffer in deeper ways and sometimes can't recover from that either. So ask yourself, is there some area of my life emotionally, psychologically, where I think I might have an issue. And hopefully, if you see something, you will talk to someone about it, maybe first a friend or family loved one, but then also get some help. But that's another difficult conversation or thing that people avoid in their lives. Uh, another area related to that, which might benefit from therapy, is relationships in our lives. Sometimes a person knows I'm not being a very good father or mother, or I'm not being involved enough or I'm having some big issue in my marriage something's not right but I don't want to face it and yes this might involve having a conversation with someone else but first we have to have that conversation with ourselves of looking at our lives and seeing what's not quite right am I being the mother I want to be the father I want to be and when it comes to being a parent sometimes I'll tell parents when you look at yourself as a parent, imagine what your kid might say about you in therapy when they're an adult, or they would say now, and think about the kind of parent you're being. Are you putting enough time and attention to show them that love? Are you doing hurtful things in that relationship? But we have to take a look at the relationships in our lives and ask ourselves, am I being who I want to be in these relationships? Am I being the father or mother I want to be, the husband, wife I want to be, even son, daughter, every area of our life. We have to ask ourselves that, and we have to not be afraid to have that difficult conversation with ourselves to see what we can do to make those things better. So having these conversations can be very challenging and difficult, and we often choose denial and avoidance because they keep us safe and they keep us in our comfort zone. If I am doing something bad or if I am not doing something I need to do, to face that means I'm going to have to do something different. And change is always difficult. So we tend to prefer saying everything is okay. And that's really our default with most things. Everything's okay. Everything is fine. But oftentimes things are not. And we have to take that closer look and be willing to face that. Comfort zone is an interesting term because when you hear comfort, you think something that feels good. A comfortable chair feels good, so 
comfort zone should feel good. But most people are very miserable in their comfort zones. And if not miserable or sad, they're going to be unhappy at some level, but also unsatisfied and unfulfilled with their lives. You're not going to give yourself the life you want if you try to just stay comfortable. And you're not going to get out of that comfort zone until you actually have that look in the mirror and that difficult conversation with yourself about what can I change or what needs to be changed in my life. What are the problems and issues in my life that I'm avoiding that I want to face? So I'm all about having difficult conversations. If you're in a relationship or maybe even planning a relationship, or if it comes to your kids, have those uncomfortable conversations before it's too late, before the problems become bigger, before you lose those opportunities. But what I wanted to talk about to end the show today is we need to have those difficult conversations with ourselves. We have to take a closer look at ourselves and see what we're avoiding, what physically, what emotionally, and what in our relationships needs to be better and that we want to work on and work on those things and face the music and face the reality and make things better. Very often what we're so afraid of we see is not so scary once we actually face it. You're afraid to get that blood test or that MRI and when you, once you get it, you see it's not so bad. Even if the news is bad, it's easier to deal with oftentimes than the anxiety of not knowing. So I hope you'll take a look in the mirror and see what you actually should see, see what's actually there. And if you can make things better, get started on that process. Um, so it's time to wrap up the show for today. I want to announce the book of the week again. It is So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson. I'll be sharing that with you on Monday's show. And thank you to everyone who sends recommendations. Please keep sending them my way for different books. This one was actually from a friend of mine, Sam Golzari, who actually was on the show a couple of years ago, but he had recommended this book a while ago to me. So finally got around to checking it out. But thank you again to everyone who makes those recommendations. And thank you to everyone who's calling and listening and to Amir who started the show and Farhu that was here to wrap it up. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.